Well, if you would take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to continue uh, the series that Brian started just a couple of weeks ago uh, on the parables, the greatest stories ever told. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 13 at some of these parables this morning, or in particular one parable. Have you ever had uh, unrealistic expectations for anything? Sometimes our expectations leaving, leave us laughing, right? Because of how absurd they were, right? We look back and we go, oh, my word, what was I thinking, right? Sometimes they leave us weeping uh, because we had such high hopes. Sometimes unmet expectations can actually cause such emotional and, and mental anguish that we go into denial, right? Denial and we, re- we reject anybody who uh, might oppose what our expectations were. Uh, there's a a movie that I've enjoyed watching. Uh, it's not a new movie, but it's called National Treasure, right? And in this movie, uh, Benjamin Gates, played by Nicolas Cage, has a long lineage of treasure seekers. And he has this expectation that he is going to find this treasure that dates all the way back to the Solomonic area or era. And as it, as it you know, went through time, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and now it's lost and he's trying to find it. His father, on the other hand, is done with it. He's done with seeking for it. He, he has wasted a ton of his life looking for this treasure, and, and they play on that in this movie with, you know, dad and son arguing about, you know, who's, if, if it's true or if it's just an illusion, just some great deception. Well, today, I want to look at a parable that Jesus told, and he told it to a whole bunch of people, the crowd, And then on the side, he told the the meaning of it to his disciples. You see, his disciples were also in a long lineage of kingdom seekers. They, along with many Jews before them, were longing for the day when the promised Messiah would come and set up his kingdom and usher in the greatest period of Jewish prosperity and rule throughout the world. There have literally been thousands of years of anticipation built up around what this king might be like. What would he do for this little country tucked away in the hills on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea? Many of the messianic expectations were connected to a historical event in Israel's past, and that event would have been the Exodus. If you remember, the Israelites had been in captivity for 400 plus years, right? Uh, They were survivors. They had been abused. Uh, They had suffered all kinds of evil, even to the point of their children being taken from them and slaughtered and killed. And then Moses shows up on the scene. And Moses has God's power on him and with him. And he's able to call down things from heaven and plagues and all sorts of things. And he wreaks havoc and God reigns justice on the Egyptian dynasty. The Israelites end up plundering the Egyptians. And Moses is known for freeing the people from their bondage and slavery and leading them into freedom and bounty. This was, in many ways, the ultimate picture of what the Messiah would be like. Even in the Torah, it said that there would be one like Moses who would come and rescue. So now fast forward many thousands of years, and we have Jesus. 
Jesus arrives on the scene, and this this whole group of people, the Jews with this long lineage of messianic expectations, some of them have become skeptics. They doubt anything's going to happen. And this Jesus, well, he'll probably amount to nothing. There are zealots. Now, they would join anyone who might throw a rock at Rome. So they're quick to maybe jump on board with Jesus. There were some pacifists who they don't want to raise any more trouble with Rome. There's enough oppression and persecution as it was. Let's not trouble the waters. Most of the Jews that were religious, I'll say that, and not not secularized, they still clung to some type of messianic hopes. And in some ways, that's the setting we have here. Jesus coming into the scene, begins to tell his disciples and tell others about who he is. And the more he tells them who he is, and the more he tells them about what he's going to do, the more people's expectations of the Messiah kind of start getting messed with. So much so that just a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus starts really receiving heavy resistance from the religious leaders. And in fact, in chapter 12, just over the page probably from the text we're going to look at today, the religious leaders basically say, you are a a demon. You're doing all this work because you're part of Satan's crew. They're so opposed to Jesus because of who he is, what he represents, and the type of kingdom he's coming to bring. It was different than their expectations vastly different. I want to give you four wrong expectations that the Jews had regarding the Messiah that will help us as we approach this parable. Okay? The first one, well, let me, I think I've uh, forgotten to click through my PowerPoint here. Let me see if we can uh, get to where we're supposed to be here. So, the disciples had expectations. I want, to, I want to talk about them. The first one is in regard to timing, okay? So timing, they had wrong expectations. The Jews expected a physical kingdom to be established through insurrection rapidly. It was supposed to happen now, right? And and you see some of this expectation even in just some of the announcements of the birth. So, you know, when when the angel comes to Mary, what does she say? She said, this this person will sit on the throne of David. Well, maybe so Mary's thinking, oh, okay, all right, we're going to set up a kingdom here. And, uh, you know, he's going to be king. Uh, Andrew, right? Andrew goes and finds his own brother Simon and says to him, hey, we found the Messiah. And he's thinking in his head, the Moses-like Messiah, who's going to come and, and, and free us from this oppression. And whew, it's going to be great. One of the primary texts that helps me understand that they really didn't understand this timing thing is actually later. It's in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. It's after the death, the burial, the resurrection, all of that. Jesus is with his disciples And when they come together, they ask him this. They say, okay, Lord, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Like, okay, so now? (laughs) Now can we get get going on this thing, this kingdom thing? You see, they had this expectation on timing that when the Messiah came, there would be this kingdom and that they would be ushered into peace and prosperity and all those who oppressed them would be taken care of. So they had a wrong expectation regarding timing, but they also had a wrong expectation regarding the enemy. You see, the Jews understood the enemy to be the empire at this time, the superpowers that oppressed them. At one point, it was, it was Assyria. At one point, it was Babylon. At one point, it was the little nations around them that were fighting. But now it's Rome. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 22, right after the the, the Last Supper, um, Jesus and his disciples are in the garden, and Judas comes to betray him with a whole band of Roman soldiers, right? And they're in the garden, and once the disciples realize what's kind of going on, look what they ask him. They said, uh, look, Lord, here are two swords. So th- this is, this, that's a verse just a little bit earlier when they were in, the, in that uh, meal time. But then later, and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Right? And then we know the story of Peter, who takes the sword and you know, whacks off the ear of uh, someone, one of the high priest's servants. Here they are, they're ready to attack. Okay, Lord, is it now? Are we going to you know, take on this Roman legion here? Are you going to you know, unleash your power and we're going to take over? They had this idea that Rome was the enemy and that they would set up a physical resistance to a physical kingdom. So they had wrong expectations about timing, wrong expectations regarding the enemy, but they also had a misunderstanding and wrong expectations regarding God's mercy. They expected God to show no mercy to their enemies, but instead to wipe them out, right? To wipe out the oppressors. Uh, in, in many ways, this is connected to the next one, and that is justice. We'll get there in just a moment. But, but they, they weren't exactly merciful towards those who were oppressing them, which, I mean, do you blame them? Would you want to be merciful to those who are oppressing you? Uh, at one point, this just gives a little bit of the attitude of the disciples. At one point, Jesus and his disciples are walking through Samaria, and uh, the town, one of the Samaritan towns, doesn't show hospitality towards Jesus. In fact, they reject him. And his disciples are like, all right, Jesus, what do you want us to do? You want us to give, give us power so we can rain down fire from heaven and consume them, right? A little reminiscent of uh, Elijah. But they're passionate. They're like, hey, they were mean to us. Let's wipe them out. No mercy. So they had a wrong expectation about mercy. But then also they had a wrong expectation regarding justice. See, the Jews did not see God's justice as something to be afraid of, rather something to look forward to, a vindication as it were. In other words, we're the good guys, and they're all the bad guys. And so when God comes to bring justice, y'all best beware, (laughs) right? A little bit of a, we're good and you're bad, and so you're going to get it, type feel. The way they thought about justice. In fact, such a strong misunderstanding of justice that when Jesus begins to talk about his death, and the need for it to satisfy justice. You know what Peter does? Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him, right? Far be it from you, Lord. You'll never die. This shall never happen to you. He just didn't understand what was really at stake. All right. So now here's what we're going to do this morning. We haven't got to the message yet. (laughs) We're going to jump into this parable and read it, but I want you to try to read it through those faulty expectations, okay? In other words, I want you to experience a little bit of the, what is going on here? What is Jesus trying to actually, I don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. This doesn't fit my expectations. I want you to try to, it's going to be hard. I want you to try to imagine it as we read it, okay? So we're going to read through the parable together here, starting in verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Now just So your radar should be up. He just said the kingdom of heaven, and he's the Messiah. You can see the disciples' mouths water, and they get really excited. All right, all right, it's coming. He's going to tell us. It's going to be like the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, 
His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, we're going to read the meaning in just a moment. But first, let's just imagine being the disciples expecting a great, you know, piece of information about the kingdom. There'd be some struggle to understand what's going on. Okay? In fact, their struggle is, well, they're like the disciples. They always state what they're thinking, right? And in fact, when we get to the, the interpretation here in just a moment, we're going to find out what they really thought was the issue with this parable. Okay? But let's look at this for a second. We notice that there's this man who's sowing seeds in his field, and then there's this deceptive enemy who comes in. But then a lot, not a lot of time is spent on the enemy. It's not like, you know, they go out and the, the servants aren't saying, hey, who's the enemy? Let's find him. Let's go get him and string him up. You know, that's not what they're thinking. The dilemma seems to be around the fact that there's weeds in this field. Like, I mean, even in the beginning, it says the man sowed good seed in his field. I mean, he's, he's, he's establishing the fact that this farmer sowed good seed in the field. It's good seed. I mean, he, he must have gone through and picked out and made sure to, to get the right seed. Now, obviously, the, the purity of your wheat was significant in this day and age, okay? If you had any type of contaminants in there or, you know, dirt or wrong, you know, like poisonous weeds or seeds or anything like that, then that could be, that could be issues, right? So he sows good seed, but his servants come along and are like, we see something in the field that's not supposed to be there. What's, what's with the weeds? Now, let me just explain real quickly the, the weed concept. Now, most likely this was not something that just happened all the time, you know? Oh, I'm mad at somebody, so I'm going to go sow, you know, weeds in their field. But it would have been familiar enough that the disciples could have picked up upon what was going on, all right? Now, there's a particular type of weed that most likely is being referenced here, okay? It's called dar- darnel. And this weed looks just like wheat until it brings forth fruit, all right? So as they're growing up together, you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. There's not really a difference. They look the same until their fruit shows, okay? And once that starts showing, the wheat will actually bend over, right? And, and the, the, the grains will be hanging there, and you can kind of see them, and they're, they're, they're white grains, and it's heavy. However, with Darnell, it's a, a little bit stronger stalk, and it sticks straight up, and so it won't bend over with the weight of the seeds. Plus, it doesn't have as many seeds, and they're black. So they're, they're like dark colored, and so you have this, this weed that, that is not good to eat, all right? There's some animals that can eat it, but can actually be poisonous, okay? So you've got these plants growing up, and obviously as the servants are out in the field every day, they don't notice it. But after a while, it begins to show because their fruit is beginning to become evident. Now, that's a lesson in itself, right? We could talk about that for a while, but we won't go there because that's not the emphasis yet, okay? At some point, your fruit will show, okay? You might look like a good person, 
You might look like a Christian, but your fruit is going to show. Okay. But the primary dilemma then that the servants bring to the master is this, what is up with the weeds? How did it get there? And you know, the, the, one of the ways we know that's the dilemma is the way that they ask the question. Okay? Look at how they ask the question. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? They're not actually questioning the master. They know the master. And they know he sowed good seed in the field. This is like when you're looking at your child and you say, did I not tell you to clean off the table? Did, did you not clean up the table? No, you didn't. Go clean it up, right? Okay, you, you already assume you know the answer. And in this situation, they know the answer is going to be a yes. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Of course you did. Well, then how then does it have weeds? Where do the weeds come from? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. Then what do you want? Then do you want us to go and gather them? The servants are quick to go gather the weeds and pull them out. They don't like weeds. They don't want the weeds there. They want the weeds gone. Now, once again, looking through the disciples' lens, they're trying to figure out kingdom stuff here. And they're going, the kingdom has weeds in it? The, king, the kingdom's not supposed to have weeds in it? it? You were supposed to deal with the weeds. Because like, we're supposed to be in a prosperous, you know, nice place with the kingdom. And there's, there should be weeds in the kingdom. All right, if there's weeds in the kingdom, let's go deal with the weeds, you know? Let's take them on. But look at what, look what, the, look what the, the farmer says. Don't gather the weeds, he says. No, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Okay? But instead, let both grow until the harvest. Okay, we're going to continue. We'll, we'll continue. We're going to go back and forth here for a little bit. Turn, turn the page over if, if you need to, to verse 36. Once again, we're going to see the, the, really the issue that the the disciples have it because they named this parable. We didn't name this parable the parable of the weeds. The disciples did. Look what he does. So that Jesus goes into the house. He left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Okay, you can just kind of, you can kind of hear mumbling together as they walk in this house. And finally they get Jesus and they're like, Jesus, what's with the weeds? Explain, explain us this. What is, what's with the weeds? And then so Jesus goes through quick statements. Boom, 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 boom. I think there's seven of them. Just relating what's what in the parable. Okay. Now, they say that every point, you know, every character and every main point in a parable has a point. But we're going to look at all of these real quickly to try to understand what's the main point that's being gathered here. Okay? So the one who sows the good seed, by the way, that's like it's actively happening. The one who sows the good seed, it's happening right now, is the Son of Man. Now, that's significant in itself. Son of Man is a reference to the Messianic figure from the prophet Isaiah. Okay? And there's other prophecies as well. But the Son of Man. Okay? The field is the world. Now, that is a little shift right there for the disciples on, on its own. Okay? The field is the world. Okay? And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Lots of things, lots of minds being blown right now in the disciples' head, okay? They're like, what? Okay? The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so there's a lot of corrections that happened within the disciples' understanding here. Let's just notice a few things. We're going to kind of go back and forth here. Tell you what, let's do it this way. Let's notice them. Let's go ahead and notice them according to those four expectations that I mentioned earlier. Timing, right? Enemy, mercy, and justice. Okay, let's, let's start pulling these things together. Okay, timing. Are there any references to time within both the parable and the meaning? And yes, there are. Okay, if you go back to the parable, we see that um, there's this reference to a harvest. Okay, a harvest. Um, at harvest time, verse 30, I will tell the reapers what to do. The meaning of this is pretty significant. Okay, verse 39, the harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are the angels. So the harvest, when this sorting is going to take place between wheat and tares, it's going to take place at harvest time, which he's equating with the end of the age. Now, it's he doesn't just say it once. He actually says it multiple times. Look at this. So, verse 39, the harvest is the close of the age. Then verse 40, so it will be at the close of the age. And then you know what? Interestingly enough, three parables later, he's talking about the dragnet, the net that's, you know, he says in verse 49, so it will come at the close of the age. He's trying to emphasize something about timing here. And he says, hey, the judgment, the 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 conflict that you are actually so desiring right now is not going to happen until the end of the age. You want everything sorted out right now. Good, bad. Us being good, of course. And we want it now. And Jesus says, no, actually, that, that's at the end of the age. That's at harvest time. Interestingly enough, too, though, I want you to notice a couple of details here. The kingdom of heaven may be, like, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. What did Jesus say the field is? The field is the world. And it actually references that the one who is sowing the good seed is the son of man. So in other words, the sowing of the seed in the field is taking place currently. Currently. So we're talking about timing here. Currently, the sowing of the seed in the field is taking place. But then, I want you to look at verse... 41, the Son of Man will send his angels, this is at the harvest time, okay, send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom. So we got a kingdom here, so I'm just just referencing timing here, we've got this kingdom that's equated with the world, that's equated with the field. You see that? Okay, so in other words, in God's kingdom, whatever that word kingdom means for this particular part of the parable, it includes wheat and tares, and it's considered the world. It's going on kind of, seems to be going on right then, right now, as the Son of Man is sowing the seed. Okay, so that's a timing issue. There's some type of something going on, a kingdom-ish of sorts. It almost sounds a little bit, though, like creation, doesn't it? Think about this. The field is the world, and the good seed is the son of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And when did the devil do that? Well, he did it by sneaky, by cunning, after the good seeds had already been set. It's almost, you almost get a little bit of a creation feel in this parable, that maybe he's talking about the world in general, right? 
Like God created the world, created it good, and then Satan comes along deceptively and sows evil in it. Interesting. Either way, this is kind of mind-shifting, right, for the disciples. They're wrestling with this. They're not quite understanding this. But that's not the only reference to kingdom in this passage. Look more. Verse 43. After the harvest, he talks about a kingdom again. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So either, A, it's a purified kingdom. After harvest time, there's this purified kingdom where it's just the wheat. Okay. Or it's, it's just a new kingdom altogether. He doesn't tell us, and, it, and he's not really trying to tell us that necessarily. But all of those things would be strange to the disciples and wouldn't quite fit expectations of, of what a kingdom should be like. It's now, but it's not now. It's future, but it's not what we thought about in the future, and it should be now. They're wrestling with the kingdom concept. You know, it's kind of interesting. We kind of wrestle with the kingdom concept sometimes, too. All right, so in regards to timing, we can see the certain elements that Jesus puts forth in the parable to correct their misunderstandings on timing. Now, let's talk about the enemy. This one, I think, is really significant. In fact, I think it changes the scenario entirely. Because Jesus relates almost surprisingly to the servants that an enemy has sown the seeds, the, the, the sinful or evil seeds in the field. Time is given to describe the crafty nature of the enemy. Now this is totally different than the Jews are expecting. Jesus says the enemy is Satan and that the weeds are the children of evil or the children of the evil one. In other words, this is not just political. This is spiritual which I don't think was quite on the Jews' radar at this point. They're thinking political. They're thinking, come on, let's go take Rome out. Let's get done. Let's set up Israel. And Jesus is actually, the enemy is, is more significant than just a political figure. The enemy is actually Satan, which means there's spiritual implications here. The disciples, this is way beyond what they could imagine. There were to be no enemies in the kingdom. God was supposed to have dealt with all of them. Okay? And this is going to become even more of a problem as we continue into con- considering what they misunderstood about justice. Okay? Now, to bring us to kind of the two, two primary pieces of this equation that I think are going to be most helpful for us. One is, let's look at mercy. I want us to understand Jesus' concept of mercy here versus what the disciples may have been thinking. They're ready to go weed out the weeds. And Jesus says, no, less in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers to do that. So the reapers are to do it, not the servants. And you're not to do it right now, you're to do it later, for the sake of the wheat. Now this is very interesting. For the sake of the wheat. So God actually is showing mercy on the weeds for the sake of the wheat. Now, let's, let's zoom out from the parable for just a moment. Let's just consider a couple things theologically here. Number one, if, if you're here and you're a believer, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you would be considered the wheat in the story, right? Type, type feel. But do you know that all of you were at one time dead in your trespasses and sins? Which means you all were tares. You all were weeds at some point. So in other words, weeds can become 
wheat. Sons of the evil one can become sons of God. It's a little reminiscent of 1 John. It's reminiscent of even what we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. That God, before the foundation of this world, has decided to show mercy on people who didn't deserve mercy. And kindness on people who don't deserve kindness. And the, the disciples really did not understand this concept of mercy. They were ready to go pull the weeds. But Jesus, for the weeds' sake, and for the or for the wheat's sake, says to wait. Now we'll talk about we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end. Let's talk lastly here about the disciples' misunderstanding of justice and how that relates to this parable. I think that this was probably the hardest part for the disciples to swallow. And that is because the justice of God, and please hear me on this, is extremely severe. Okay? The justice of God is extremely severe. They did, they did want severity, but not on them. They wanted severity on everybody else. And by the way, we are naturally that way too, right? All of us want mercy for us, but justice for the others. Okay? Be easy on me, hard on them. Okay? Especially if it inconveniences me, be really hard on them. They wanted their enemies to pay and be wiped out or destroyed. They hated Rome. But Jesus here resets both who the enemy is and what justice looks like. Look at verse 20 or 41 again. He identifies the wheat a little fur, or the, excuse me, the weeds a little further. And he says this, the Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. All causes of sin and lawbreakers. Now this is just... This upends the whole thing. Because no doubt, as the disciples are sitting there, they know, <laughs> half of them are from Galilee, most of them are all from Galilee, right? They know that they're lawbreakers and that they're sinners. And yet that's who's going to be pulled out to be thrown in the fire. It, it's not computing. I thought it was just people who weren't Israel and like don't like us. If they're friends with us, we can let them stay, but not the, not the people who don't like Israel. But you're saying it's something in my heart? You're saying something that's deeper than just, you know, nationality? Yes. Here they were thinking as Jesus began his story about the kingdom, they were getting excited. Yes, we get to find out what the plan is. We can help fight off Rome. Maybe we can set up, maybe we can even be part of the ruling group. And now they hesitate. Wait, are we weeds or are we wheat? (laughs) What's going on here? The kingdom was not just Israel, but the world. The enemy was not Rome, but Satan and evil. God was not going to wipe out evil because he could not do that without wiping out his children. Because sin and evil have grown so closely in with the rest. This is turning out to be significantly different than the disciples were thinking. So, Jesus is reorienting his disciples to what the kingdom is going to be like. Now, this has implications for us as well, okay? And so, Let me just say it this way first. Jesus and his kingdom are not what you expect. Okay? Jesus and his kingdom are not 
what you expect. And that, that's really, the, the, in some ways, the message that Jesus was communicating to his disciples. Hey, You've had this like long lineage of expectation built up over thousands and thousands of years. I want you to know something. Your expectations are not actually quite accurate. Let me adjust those. And he gives them this story, and it causes them no small consternation. But what about for us? We're not the disciples in the sense of we're not, you know, there in Israel this time. Should this story have any necessarily impact on us? Should this affect us in this day and age with the church? Now, I'll have to tell you this, when I, when I first hear the, the parable of the tares and the wheat, I think, oh, that's a, great, that's a great illustration of the church because, you know, sometimes there's, like, people that are unbelievers in the church. Guess what? I can't actually do that because that's not what the text says. It says the field's the world, not the church. So I can't actually do that. doesn't mean it's not true, but I can't do that with this text. So what, what are the implications then for us? Because we're in the world, right? Let me suggest this. God's timing may not be your timing. Jesus will come back. He said he would. It could be tomorrow. It could be 500 years from now. We do not know. In the meanwhile, he is merciful to those who are the children of the evil one for the sake of the children of God. And let me me remind you that you all were once darkness but have now been made light. And if you're in this room and you know you're in darkness then the appeal is very, very clear. You don't know the timing of God. Don't presume upon it. We do know that while we have today, we have time to repent right now. In other words, while it is still today, you can repent and turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is available. That's the timing that we can operate off of right now because that's all we know. So when it comes to timing, we don't know God's timing, and we should not presume upon it. When it comes to the enemy, this is significant. Christians must honestly deal with the enemy within as well as the enemy without. You know what? When Christians bicker and fight, not, not just with each other, but, but you know, their, their, their family or people that don't know Jesus outside, sometimes we forget that the enemy is not that person. The enemy is not our spouse, our children. It's not a Democratic president or a Republican president. It's not an unbelieving neighbor. Our enemy is actually Satan and the evil that's present within us. Now, some people ascribe everything to Satan. Okay? And I want to be careful of that. Some people, you know, they they have prayer walks through their house to, uh, you know, remove Satan from the closets and Satan from, you know, this room and that room and and I'm not saying, you know, you should not do that. The Bible doesn't say anything about doing that. But some people, that they, they assume that Satan is involved in everything, right? And uh, if something bad happens, it was Satan. It's the devil. That's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, you have people who deny any, any supernatural. It's like, well, that was just you. It's just you. It's just your own sinful heart. You know, it's just your own problems. It's my problems, your problems. And we just need to own up with our own responsibilities. Well, actually, the, the Bible is, is pretty clear that, that they're both there right? And, and Satan is real, and so, so are his demons, and I don't know how many he's got. You know, you hear of guardian angels. Maybe you've got a tempting demon. You know, I don't know. But you know what? I, I do know this. In Ephesians, Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and darkness, okay? And evil rulers. So let's be careful of where we're going to place or who we're going to call the enemy, 
The enemy is not just in a different, you know, political party than you. That's not how it works. The enemy is actually in you. So let's be harsher on us than on others, even though we're tempted to be the other way around. I think thirdly, though, expectations corrected. I think we, we as Christians should have a proper understanding of justice. Now, I'm doing justice first because I want to do mercy last. <laughs> but let me just say this about justice. God's justice is very severe. Don't skip this. Don't miss this. If you sin, you die. That's how it was set up from the beginning. In the day that you do it, you will die. You sin, you die. Over and over, Jesus talked about the misery of hell. I don't think he wanted people to go there. He warned them of its reality and of its pain and of its suffering. He also warned who would go there. Sinners and lawbreakers. So this parable contains a very sharp warning. Remember, when Jesus first gave this parable, it was to the crowds, not even just his disciples. It was to the crowds. Guess what? This is a warning to anybody who hears this. Okay. Judgment is coming. Justice is coming. And God will meet it out, and it will be very severe. And it's upon all who sin. This is what we can expect at the end of the age. The wages of sin is death. Don't somehow think that because you go to church even in the midst of a pandemic, that your righteousness will somehow cause you to escape the fires of hell because it won't. All are guilty before a holy God. And we need to make sure we're aligned on that. Let's not have wrong expectations about God's justice. But one, one other piece that I want to highlight here is I think it's important for us. You don't get to do the judgment. Do you notice the servants in the parable? The servants did notice the fruit. They noticed the fruit. They came to the farmer and said, well, what's with the weeds? <laughs> we got like, you know, good, good stuff here and bad stuff. What's with the weeds? So they did observe and make a judgment call in that sense where they observed and they noticed, okay, that's weeds and that's wheat. They noticed that. So I'm not saying don't judge people in the sense of don't observe them and notice their fruit. But notice the servants don't get sent out to do the harvesting. It's the reapers who in the, in the meaning, Jesus says, are the angels. In other words, you don't have it in you to be able to discern between the wheat and the weeds. And if you try to go pull in weeds, you're going to uproot some wheat. Think of how many times the Christian church, and I'm putting you know, massive quotes around that, has decided to take into its own hands justice. The Spanish Inquisition, Crusades, You don't have it, yeah, the Salem witch trials. We don't, we don't have it in us. We can't properly do this. It's not our job. It never was. So let me just put this warning out to all of us. Let's be careful that we don't try to assume the position of judge. Because we're not. We're not. And if we do, if we do engage in the judging of determining you are in and you are out, we will actually root up and do damage to the wheat. So let's be really careful. So let's not be off on God's justice. But then lastly, let me end on mercy. I love ending on mercy. But it's related to justice. You see, Jesus basically said this, I can't end evil. Let me see if I, 
Oh, sorry, I forgot to click my slides here. Jesus basically just said this, I can't end evil without ending you. I can't root out evil and wrong in this world without rooting out those I love and have chosen as my children. Jesus' mercy is deep and unfathomable. You can say it this way, God's mercy is more abundant than you could ever hope for. You see, Jesus came to this earth and endured the evil and the suffering. He came to take on sin and defeat it, conquer death, conquer the grave, so that he could actually end evil without ending you. He could actually remove evil. At the end of the age, he will be able to remove evil and still have his precious chosen seed, his children. And the only way that's possible, the only way that's possible, is if he himself took our sin in his own body on the tree and died, taking death for us, and then being raised again to new life. He ends the parable by saying this, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I want you to know something. Because of God's mercy, you can have an absolutely beautiful, glorious future with him as your father. Right? It'll shine in their father's kingdom. But he ends it this way. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, this might not be what you expect. This might be different than you expected. But if you're willing to let Jesus, the Son of God, adjust your expectations, then you can also embrace his mercy, accept the justice that was poured out on Jesus for you, and become a child of God. That can happen even today. If you're sitting here today and you know, you know that you're not a child of God, then this is for you. There's mercy awaiting. Justice has taken place. Mercy because Jesus came and died in your place and rose again. Mercy because there's still another day, another offer today for those who repent and call. But there's also justice God's justice is more severe than you'd ever imagined, but his mercy is greater than you could possibly hope for. Will you hear it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this parable. It's different. It's different than the disciples expected. It's different than what we naturally would necessarily want. But Lord, it's exactly what you desire. It's exactly what you've planned. And it's perfect. Because you are the good farmer. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, who's never received your forgiveness, who when they look at themselves, they realize that they are sinners and lawbreakers deserving judgment. Lord, I pray that they would call upon your mercy. They'd ask for your grace to be forgiven and to be rescued, to be born again to a living hope, to be made children of God. 
We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.